Once in a while, when uh, my family and I get together, um, mostly if it's, you know, all of us kids, all three of us together with our parents, uh, once in a while, we'll joke how we have, you know, us kids have in various ways lost the genetic lottery. Uh, sometimes happens in families. You know, I sometimes joke that I inherited my mom's jumbled mouth uh, that's had three rounds of orthodontic work, chain and bracket surgery, four impacted wisdom teeth. Um, I inherited allergies from my mom. I, that's something that I got from her. And from my dad's side, I got heart disease as well, so that's fun. Um, that's all up and down my dad's side of the family. Um, the, one, the one bad trait you could say that I did not inherit, thankfully, was bad eyesight. I've got 20-20 vision, probably even better. And I say probably because I've only been to the eye doctor one time in my life. And it was an appointment that was required for me when I was to go to seminary. Uh, again, that's the only time. I've made it 18 years of my life without going to an eye doctor. I hope to make it another 18 plus without going back again. But as good as my eyesight might be, we know that spiritually, spiritually, eyesight, so to speak, is one of the downfalls of the human condition. And the eyes of our souls are, in fact, riddled with disease. If we go back to when our first parents fell, the very first thing they did was they hid themselves from God. They averted their eyes from him out of shame. And further, when they recognized their own nakedness, they began to cover themselves so that they wouldn't be seen by the now nefarious eyes of others. And we go throughout the Old Testament and the journeys of people like even Moses, God's holy people were racked with fear of seeing the face of God, or else they felt they would die. Even Moses at the top of Mount Sinai and meeting God in the tents as they journeyed through the desert, all of those times he did so with his face veiled so that he would not have to see God or hear his voice lest he would die. And today that reality in our first reading is expressed by the people themselves who were asking God to interact with them via a prophet. Because hearing the voice of God or seeing his face was a source of paralyzing, servile fear. And among its many consequences, sin infects the eyes of our souls. Because what kind of relationship can you have with someone when you don't want to look upon them? What kind of relationship could we have with God if we were unable to see him face to face, or even more, if we didn't even want to see him face to face? There's a reason why the Netflix show Love is Blind does not always lead to lasting relationships. We need to see. And we need to see clearly and we need to see fully. And so to conquer sin, to conquer this cancer, so to speak, of our eyes, our God decides to rip the band-aid off and make himself visible to us, whether we like it or not. But astonishingly, brothers and sisters, he does so not in a great, powerful, and blinding manner. No, he becomes... Another human being like us. He veils himself, clothes himself in, in flesh. He becomes visible, but not in a way that threatens or overwhelms. And this institutes a fundamental shift in our relationship with God, with humanity's relationship with God. That we can now see him face to face. And rather than dying out of fright or fear, we can behold him with affection and adoration. 
And so it's a bit of an irony, even in this gospel that we hear, that in praying about it this week and imagining the scene, the only creature who really wouldn't look at Jesus face to face was the evil spirit dwelling within this man. That evil spirit knows that if he looks at Jesus, he'll be banished from this man's soul. I almost envision, you know, Jesus over here and the evil spirit just kind of looking down like this, like, what have you to do with us, Jesus? I know who you are. You come to destroy us. You're the Holy One of God. That evil spirit is scared because he knows exactly who is there, but won't look at him because he knows that that would mean the end of him. The evil one is so repulsed by the idea of God becoming man that he can't bear to look at it. And so because he's so repulsed, he wants us to do the exact same thing. He wants you and I to avert our eyes from the God who loves us and who created us. That is his goal more than anything else, to get us to avert our eyes from God. And I think he does this in three primary ways. The first way he tries to get us to avert our eyes is to distract us with external stimuli on this earth, the shiny objects that our eyes immediately go to. I think it's why our smartphones exist as well. The other way that, our, that the evil one tries to avert our eyes from God is to turn our eyes inward on ourselves in pride, thinking that we know best, that we don't need to look to our God because to look to him would mean that we have to follow his commandments. And certainly there's no shortage of that in our day and age. And the other way, maybe the most insidious, is we lower our eyes in shame. Shame over our sins and shame over our imperfections. Now, to be upset with our sinfulness is not in and of itself a bad thing. I would be more worried if we were not. However, if it is taken to an extreme, then unfortunately we hang our heads in shame and disgust over ourselves and no longer feel worthy to behold Jesus. The devil can take sorrow over our sin, which is a good thing, and twist it and warp it and create in it something that wasn't meant to be there. Namely, something we call scrupulosity, where we become obsessed that everything we do is sinful, or maybe more commonly, we become so ashamed over our sins that we no longer feel worthy of God's love and therefore no longer worthy of seeing Jesus. And it's so ironic That whether we are prideful, whether we are distracted, or whether we are scrupulous, the effect of all three of these things is the exact same. That we keep our eyes away from Jesus. We no longer want to behold the face of God. And our eyes are not on the one who, who we should fix our gaze, the one whose face is the face of mercy. And so it is imperative for us, brothers and sisters, that we are aware of how the evil one tries to work so that we can fight back when we find our eyes away from Jesus. Because at the heart of every temptation is a lie that we believe about ourselves or believe about something, and then we act out of that lie. So, for instance, if we are tempted towards distraction, we have to maybe step back and ask ourselves, what am I trying to escape? What am I trying to escape in life? What spiritual malady am I trying to self-medicate with? And call out that lie that it can all just be helped with a few minutes on our phone, which, as we know, turns into an hour and turns into us seeing things that we shouldn't. If our temptation is to pride, 
We have to step back and ask ourselves, am I really self-sufficient enough to be in charge of my own eternal salvation? And when the answer to that is inevitably no, we have to turn our eyes toward the one who heals and strengthens us for the journey ahead. And if we find ourselves lowering our heads in shame, we must realize that the end result of that shame is the same as all the others. And we should want no part of that. Because the face of Jesus is what we need the most. Brothers and sisters, God became man to show us his face, to show us his love, to win us over not with brute force and fear, but tenderness and merciful love. Are we too prideful to turn to God rather than ourselves? Do we always have our eyes engrossed in frenetic activity and trivial things? Or are we afraid to let God look us in the eye and see us as we are? May we keep our eyes always fixed on Jesus, the perfecter of our souls, and say with the psalmist, Lord, let us see your face, and we shall be saved.